for me, it's a constant spectrum. And I think it's the same for everyone. Mental health is a constant spectrum that's continuously changing. In order for us to stay at the healthy and happy, and we need to invest in that. We need to focus on the right habits every day to make sure we're healthy, well, and resilient. Your habits as are gonna be different to mine. We need to spend the time going, okay, well, what makes me feel better? What helps me deal with my day-to-day life? And what helps me combat challenges when they arise? And then investing in those behaviors. It's not a one-size-fits-all. So we do need to spend the time differentiating between my own behaviors and yours. And then working out, okay, well, how can we implement them in a more regular basis? Self-care can be a whole lot of things. It can be something as big as doing an hour's training session a day. It can be something as small as taking three deep breaths. I think it's really important we work out what our own self-care looks like, making sure it's achievable, and then making sure we can actually implement that. Welcome to episode 5 of Paper Fox Radio. I'm your host, As Roberts. How you doing? Good? There's been a wave of awareness around mental health recently with the COVID stuff that's been going on. With so much uncertainty and the entire globe being in some sort of holding position... I've certainly felt it, and I've had to actively work on my mental health on a daily basis. Mental health is something that is very close to me and has been a big part of my life since I was a little boy. Over the years, it has taken me to some pretty dark places, and with the work that I've been doing to manage it, it has also opened up some beautiful experiences that I would have never imagined come out of those dark times. I'm grateful for everything my journey has given me, both highs and lows, alongside the other healths. It's become a daily practice. Today's guest is Jack Jones. Jack had everything going for him. He was a young, white, straight, Australian guy. Textbook. He was passionate about his sport, He did really well at school. He had a promising future ahead of him, had a ton of friends and a family who loved him. He was kicking goals on and off the field. But then it all came crashing down. His body broke down and he found himself deeply unhappy as his life started to unfold. This took him to the edge of suicide. Jack managed to get the help he needed when he called Lifeline, a suicide prevention service here in Australia, and his road to recovery began. I met Jack late last year, 2019, through the Banksia project, where he is their program lead. Jack has devoted himself to serving and supporting others, caring during tough times and empowering them with preventative skills to better manage their mental health before reaching that crisis point. 
For full transparency, I'm a participant and a volunteer facilitator with the Banksia project. I attend their growth rooms and this has been incredibly valuable for me as part of my mental health practice. The Banksia project gives me the opportunity to support others and give back to the community. This conversation was recorded a couple of weeks ago on Zoom and there are a couple of spots where the sound drops out just for a second, but I'm sure you'll deal. If you know anybody that has a story to tell or if you've got a story to tell and you think that'd be a good fit for the podcast, please shoot me a message. I hope you enjoy this episode and please share it with your friends and family and the people that need to hear it. Thanks, Jack, and thanks for joining us today. How's your day been? Mate, thanks very much for having me, Az. Uh, the day's been good. It's a nice sunny day down here, so enjoying uh, enjoying a slow start to the morning and, and relaxing a little bit for a lot of work to do this afternoon. How about you? Family morning this morning, playing in parks, and uh, our son was chasing a lot of dogs, uh, mixed success. So... There's some, yeah, there's some people that are happy to let, um, let them chase after their dog and other people are very much not so happy. So, yeah, how good. Now, mental health is a big topic. And before we kick off, if you could tell anyone, if they do need help or if they know anyone that needs help, what's the best thing that people should do? The things that we talk about today could be challenging for some people listening. If while they're listening to the podcast or want to reach out for help, there are some amazing services. Firstly, I'd say if it's immediate, call Lifeline on 131114 or triple zero. But also if it's a follow-up, look to their local GP or online services such as uh, Beyond Blue. Great. That's awesome. Thanks, Jack. So maybe let's kick off with your journey into mental health. You grew up in Sydney or? No, so I grew up in Canberra down in, uh, in the beautiful God's country of Canberra. Um, nice. Everything down there. The childhood was a, a fairly mundane one. Uh, my, my parents uh, separated when I was quite young, and, and, but other than that, they, they were on an amicable, amicable relationship. And, you know, I spent time between both mum and dad's house. I, I had some opportunity with sport, took me to a, a really good high school, Maris Canberra. Rugby sort of became my, my everything. Um, that's, that's what I pursued and that's what I've spent all my life thinking about, uh, working towards and, and training for and things like that. You were playing rugby at quite a high level by the sounds of it. Uh, look, I was trying to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so um, played for my school, played quite a few uh, rep teams and things like that. And, and yep. it kind of seemed that, you know, rugby was my outlet. Rugby was my... My coping mechanism, it was my outlet, it was what I was good at. The other things were probably put to the wayside um, to focus on, on my passion and, and what I seemed to be getting good results on. Mm. What was your life like before you, before you realised something was up, was up with your mental health? I think this is the really interesting one. I, I thought my life was quite normal. You know, I was straight, white, well-educated. I had a couple of uni- university degrees under my belt played a fairly high level of sport. I pursued that rugby throughout school, took that. That's probably what took me to university. Uh, it made me take the move up to Sydney, up the highway for a few hours and sort of had everything in my corner. I was a really, you know, social person, had, had great friends, had great connections around me. And, and I think that was probably what stood out for me is that I did have a lot of resources and I had 
my own resources. I had resources around me, um, and I still didn't probably realise the challenge that I was I was soon to be facing. I did live a very busy life. When I was at uni, I found myself um, working full time as well. So I spent a lot of time. I usually worked about thirty to forty hours a week. Um, studying obviously full-time university degree and then a master's and then also um, trying to train about 20 25 hours a week for rugby wow so I was very and to me that was a really good thing days where I weren't where I wasn't necessarily working or training or studying to me felt like a waste I, I was really productive and that was a really productive period of my life but it wasn't sustainable I probably was also what I've, what I've now looked back to realise is I probably was trying to run from some of the things that I needed to face, some of the challenges that I probably had in my life or previously had, I hadn't dealt with um, and mm. I hadn't processed. And, and so filling my schedule from beginning to end and then after that trying to add on being a young sort of 22-year-old bloke with a social life and, you know, going out with friends and all that kind of stuff I just and living in share houses, I was always interacting with people and doing things. Um, Constantly stimulated. What were some of those things you were trying to process? My uh, relationship with my parents was a very interesting one. Um, they were always very supportive of me doing what I wanted to do. And, and a lot of the times that was sport. There were some barriers of emotional connection that I probably had with both of them in different ways. There are a whole range of reasons why that was and, and why that is. I think that left me feeling, okay, well, my my social support, my the way I get reinforcement and noticed is, is sport. And that's what continued to reinforce that cycle of to be good at something is, is how you uh, get gratification and appreciation from people around you, not just, you know, my immediate family, but uh, friends and family friends and all those things. It was be good at sport. For me, that was really a safety net that I had to continue to be good at that in order to be worthy and that was a really unhelpful behaviour that whether I developed that, whether it was forced on me, um, is a completely different conversation. But I think that was my reinforcement pattern was do well in order to be noticed and not really satisfied with who I was or, or how I was. Was it fair to say that you were just doing your best at absolutely everything just to get some sort of recognition? Yeah, I think yeah. it was always about... It was about aiming high. Um, I remember yeah. the day that I, I, uh, I graduated my master's and I was sitting in my graduation ceremony watching the people that were going up with PhDs and I was just sitting there going, I need to get one of them. Um, wow. My master's wasn't enough, you know. I, I thought, you know, there's more to be achieved. I need to be aiming higher. And until that point, I hadn't really thought about that. Seeing people doing that, that was going, okay, well, that's the next step then. Sport's a really interesting one that sometimes uh, it doesn't, play out like you planned mm. i i did get great support um for a long time but then i also went through some serious injury i knew the standard of sport that i wanted to play and that i had played in the past but my body couldn't hold up to that and then the constant stress of i think my nervous system was obviously under too much stress from a whole range of things and like i said my schedule was was full from beginning right. to end and and so my body then I, I was starting to not get that reinforcement that I was used to in those positive mm. measures because I couldn't perform at sport. I couldn't, and I literally had every injury under the sun. So that wasn't easy either. So is that sort of the point where the wheels started to fall off? And Yeah, I think it definitely was. 
as I said, I, I was very socially connected, very socially supported. And I still would just sit there and go, why, why don't I feel happy? Why am I not enjoying what's meant to be the peak of my life? Yeah. I, I felt like I was quite lonely and isolated while there were people all around me. I couldn't express to them how I felt. At the time, that was a really tough thing. Looking back, I didn't have the skills to express my emotions and, and I didn't feel comfortable doing that. I think I covered them up and I did that for, for years on end. As I said, I, I just filled the schedule so that I didn't have to face those emotions and didn't have to express them. And, and then all of a sudden it, uh, it started, as you said, the wheels started falling off. You know, I, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder, um, suicidality, and I genuinely spent quite a lot of time considering why I was still here. I, I hope that no one has to face, and I don't think anyone should have to face. What became really apparent to me is if I'm feeling these things and I do have everything that I have and I've had the lucky upbringing, how many other people don't have? So how'd you know you need to go for help or what was, what was that, what happened at that point? The most standout point was uh, meeting in call lifeline. Okay. Genuinely was contemplating, you know, taking my own life and that's not a good place for anyone to be in. No. So I made that call. I'll never meet the person on the other end of that phone call. I'll never know who they are. The half an hour, 40 minutes that he spent with me on that phone genuinely saved my life and he encouraged me to reach out to a few people around me and have some conversations that I hadn't previously had about saying, look, I really need your help. Um, I need you to be involved with me um, and caring for me in a deeper capacity than what you have been uh, because what's currently happening isn't working and there was some significant relationships around me. And then I really just had to strip everything back. Rugby was continuing to not work. Um, I had major back fractures. I, I was continuously getting concussions. And so I had to pull back on all of that and say, look, I can't keep training every night of the week. I can't keep training every Saturday. and I need to spend some time relaxing and processing things and going through my emotions. And I would say it was the best part of 18 months of two years of having to process my own feelings and emotions and trying to work out why I felt the way I was. Obviously, I had uh, professional support to do that, um, working with some clinicians in terms of psychologists and psychiatrists to make sure that I was safe, trying to work out why I behaved the way I did and, and firstly come to terms with that. And I think that's the hardest part is accepting the way that that is and then working out, okay, well, how can we, how can we address it? How can we proactively work towards adjusting some of those behaviours so that they're healthy? So I spent a lot of time doing that and, and I also had a change in, uh, in career um, and I found some, some really supportive people around me. The, the work I was in was, was mentoring young Aboriginal kids based in Redfern but in Western Sydney and then also into remote communities in the Northern Territory and that sort of gave me a lot of perspective on things as well. There was another podcast I was listening to you on but you were talking about working with some of the Indigenous kids and what was it that they taught you? They didn't necessarily have a whole lot around them. Um, they didn't necessarily have all the sort of support that I did, but they were, they were happy with what they had at times. Mm. Obviously, they had some challenges. As well. But the other thing that they taught me was a roundabout way was, was about expressing emotion. The sort of filters that I'd learned to place on myself about not expressing my emotions and doing what other people wanted to hear rather than what I felt those behaviours with these a lot of these Indigenous kids is if they weren't happy with something, they'd let you know about it. If, yeah. if they're annoyed, you know. 
most importantly, if they loved and cared and they trusted you, they'd let you know about it. Witnessing those sorts of behaviours was something that I found really empowering to say, okay, well, I need to start acting in a similar way. You know, I need to express how I feel, whether it's, whether it's uncomfortable for me, whether it's uncomfortable for the people around me, it's really important that I do that rather than people pleasing or doing what other people want to hear. Yeah, and how, much, and how much of that is cultural as well, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. for sure. How did you end up at Banksia? I was working for, for NASCA, which was the Aboriginal organisation I worked for, and at the same time, still trying to process my own mental health and well-being. And I, I went, I saw a Banksia event. Um, Mitch Pearce, the rugby league player, was talking yep. about uh, overcoming adversity. And I thought, you know what, I'd love to hear what he has to say about overcoming adversity. I'd love to learn, learn what he's talking about. Came to an event as a member of the public and I fell in love with the concept of let's teach people how to deal with crisis before it arises rather than waiting for it to occur and picking up the pieces. The whole concept of saying, okay, well, people need to learn to have emotional conversations proactively. I'd think about the conversations that I should have had before I really struggled with my mental health and that was talking about my emotions and talking about it to people, expressing it to people and then talking about what I needed in return. And then I also think about the other end of that where the times I did try and express that to my mates who were 21-year-old, 22-year-old blokes particularly, they have no idea how to have those conversations and I wouldn't expect So I really fell in love with the whole concept of let's give people skills to avoid crisis, to deal with things proactively and support others in the same way so that hopefully their friends and family don't go down those pathways either. I I feel like it's not just 21-year-old guys I've had my own my own journey with mental health, which brings me to Banksia and this conversation as well. People in general, like there's some people who have almost been through that process who know that in order to to cope and to to process that stuff, you need to have these conversations. And people who are still yet to discover that they've got their own shit, um, they just they don't have the tools. They don't know how to deal with that. Yeah, it's it's yeah. interesting. You walk into a workplace and, and you say, hey, mate, how are you going? Yeah, good. How are you? Yeah, good. And in your mind, you're thinking, well, I'm not good. Uh, I haven't slept all night. I'm worried about finances. The kids have kept me up and they're doing terribly at school. But you go, yeah, I'm good. And, yeah. and you walk the other way. Alternatively, if I was to walk into there and I say, if, if someone said, hey, mate, how are you going? And I said, oh, I'm not doing too well. Um, you know, the kids have kept me up. I'm worried about finances and I haven't slept all night. The other person would go, yeah, good, and walk the other <laughs> way. Because we don't have the skill to have these conversations effectively. And, and I think that's a really tough thing, particularly when people are struggling. They want to be heard and they want to be received in, in safe and effective ways. And if the other people aren't doing that, they're less likely to open up. It's, it's connection, isn't it? Tell us a bit about Banksia Project. I wasn't the founder. I came to an event and, and fell in love with the whole preventative aspect. I then volunteered for 12 months helping set up our, our main program, which is the Growth Rooms program, and working alongside the founder and the organising committee to, to get that registered charity status, get a bit of an idea about who we are and what we wanted to do. And then we luckily got some, received some, some funding. They, they decided that they want to be in the first full-time role, which is a really exciting um, opportunity. 
I loved the work I was doing with young Aboriginal communities, but I really felt like this is my calling. Um, as someone who had studied to run health systems and health programs, I always felt I wanted to work in the not-for-profit social justice space and I was someone who'd experienced mental illness firsthand. Mm. So for me, it was just the perfect opportunity to say, this is how I can make my impact and this is my purpose and this is my calling and that may change. And until now, this is, this is exactly it. Mm. And in the last two years, we've really just been developing our programs. Now, the whole concept of the Banksia Project is about connection and support. The idea of it is more than just a once a month program or a fortnight program or whatever the regularity of that is. For me, it's about a family of community and connection, a place that people know whether it's in their program or outside of their program, if they need a little bit more support, they need to learn about their own mental health, they need to learn about someone around them's mental health, Banksy is the place to go. Sure, we achieve that through our monthly preventative programs, but I really want to emphasise that this is a family and a community. The way that we do that is we actually provide preventative tools and skills. We teach people how to have emotional conversations. We teach people how to deal with emotions like forgiveness or regret. Teaching people how important it is to exercise, to diet, to sleep well. You know, the importance of being mindful, of being grateful. A whole range of practical skills so that when challenges arise, because we're all going to have challenges at some point, it's really important we deal with them safely we already have had an emotional conversation with our significant other or our friends or family members and then when the challenge pops up it's a really comfortable thing to reopen we can control what we can control and and really make sure that we're putting ourselves in the best position to deal with those challenges safely and effectively there's a number of other organizations out into the community like what's banksia's uh, niche or what what's their point of difference I look at the example of Are You OK? Are You OK are absolutely amazing in what they do. For the last sort of, I'd say it's about eight years, they have made it acceptable for people to have conversations about mental health all across Australia. The whole concept of saying Are You OK? is a very limited one. If someone replies to that conversation saying, oh, I'm actually not too sure, I'm not feeling great, maybe I'm not OK, that's where it stops. I really want to emphasise I wouldn't be able to do the work I'm doing today if it wasn't for an organisation like that that has made it possible because I don't think, I think seven or eight years ago it wasn't necessarily acceptable to have a conversation about mental health or particularly mental illness. We're up to the stage now where it is okay. What Banksy is trying to provide is actually, okay, well, if you're not necessarily okay or if you're not sure about that, here's a safe space, here's some safe tools, here's a safe audience and safe referral pathways to make sure that you can talk about those emotions in the right space. And I think that's a really important space to foster so that people know, okay, well, if I'm not necessarily okay or I'm not sure, I know where I can go to actually address these things. The other aspect that I think Banksia are really trying to address is to be that concierge, be that catalyst between community and clinician. Mm -hmm. Um, So all of our programs have qualified clinical oversight so that if one of our community members is struggling beyond the scope of you and I as, as everyday people who don't have formal qualifications, it's mm. not our role in people's severe mental illness. So what we're trying to be the catalyst for is to make sure that the step between community and clinician is an easier one. Yeah. As you know, as one of our facilitators, is if you can sit there with one of your participants and say, look, I'd feel a lot more comfortable if we could have this chat to a clinician that makes it a really seamless process rather than say, okay, we'll head down to your local GP and go and book yourself an appointment. 
the chance of that happening was quite slim. Yeah, I had back when I um, first got help, it was oh jeepers, it was it was straight to the doctor sort of thing. That was a big big step that I had to take, not by myself. Uh, I had a very supportive partner. It was still getting my head around that was just huge. What's happening at Banksy is a good a good step. Yeah. What we're trying to do is is not say, look, I'm going to come into your community, whether it's in a local sort of sports club or a Sydney suburb or whatever it is, or in Western New South Wales, Canberra. It's not coming to that community and say, we're going to provide some external facilitators that are going to run this program for you. I think the whole strength of what we're doing is actually say, we're going to train you guys as a community to support each other. So we get local facilitators like yourself and say, we're going to give you the skills to support your local community. And that carries a lot more weight. I always use the example, it's all peer-based. If my, say, my mum or my partner or someone at work says, I'm, you know, have you thought about this? I'm a little bit worried about you. You kind of shrug it off. Whereas if one of your peers, one of your mates says, hey, mate, have you slept enough? Like you're acting a bit on edge or are you okay? I'm a little bit worried about you. It tends to really hit home. That whole peer-based support with clinical oversight. That's probably our point of difference at the Banksia Project and it's something we really try and emphasise. Yeah, uh, and trust. Doing the research for this, um, what I talked to you about, and one of the things that comes up is like, I can think of a number of people in my circle that I'd feel absolutely comfortable having a conversation with, but then there's other people that I'd just go out and have a beer with them, but I couldn't actually trust them with that sort of conversation. And having the support of these people in the growth rooms around you, you know that these are all people that are dealing with similar struggles and there's definite trust there. So you feel really comfortable there to share. You need to give your peers permission to be vulnerable. Um, mm. You can say to someone 10 times, look, what's, your, what's up? How can I help? But until you're willing to be vulnerable first, break that ice and give them permission to be vulnerable it's really hard to get them to open up. So what we try and emphasise to our peer facilitators is get into that space, be vulnerable yourself, tell them that mm. you are human, I've struggled, and you're here to tell that story and hopefully give them the permission to be vulnerable themselves and it will mm. allow them to talk about the challenges they're facing because they will say, you know what, this person is not only willing to have a conversation but they're comfortable doing it. It's leadership through vulnerability. Yeah, absolutely. Mental health can be for some people it can be kind of a scary murky confusing topic like mental health mental illness what do we mean when we talk about mental health you talk about mental health and people go nah i'm switched off you talk about mental health and they instantly assume that you're talking about anxiety depression ptsd ocd whatever the the issue is but they automatically associate mental health with a mental illness What's really important to emphasise in the same way that we all have physical health is that we all have mental health too. And it's really important we're all thinking about our physical health. What have I eaten today? How have I exercised? Have I got enough sleep? Have I got enough sunlight? All those sorts of things. In the same way, it's really important we think about our mental health. Have I addressed my mental health enough today? Have I cared for it enough or, or cultivated a, a positive environment today and invested in that well-being and health? I think it's really important that we actually differentiate that from mental illness because if we don't, people will continue to think mental health is mental illness, not worry about the proactive things they can do to be happy and healthy mm. and unfortunately not be able to deal with challenges as well when they pop up. 
Was it you that said it was gym for the mind? Absolutely. We all need to train to be mentally fit and healthy. Yeah. We need to train to be mentally resilient so that when those challenges pop up, that you're, you're equipped to deal with them. And I've heard you talk in one of your previous podcasts about foundational habits. Yeah. And I really think foundational now, habits points, are, points to you, Jack. Points to you. <laughs> I, I think those foundational habits can be based around physical fitness, but they also probably most importantly need to be based about around mental fitness and mental health so that you can continue to do everything else that you want to do as well. For sure. Like mental health has been such a, such a part of my life since I was young. Like it's just something I've had to deal with since I was young, 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 young. So I don't, I don't really separate the two anymore. Like I just know it's all part of one big system that if I don't look after my physical health or my diet or my spiritual health, then my mental health just goes goes off the rails and I start feeling down and I have to work I have to work really hard to bring it back and get back into those positive habits so the other thing I wanted to talk about here was uh, that mental health doesn't discriminate you can't judge a book by its cover and everybody's got their shit what does mental health look like what does mental health look like or what does mental illness look like I'll terribly paraphrase uh, the World Health Organization here but it's, it. it's <laughs> Being happy and healthy um, in our own mind, it's being able to deal with challenges when they pop up, and then it's being able to contribute to our wider community. That last part is something that's really important because social connection, social support, social impact, and I guess um, purpose is something that's really important to our own well-being. If you're stuck in a rut and you don't know how to make yourself feel better, go and help someone else. As a really small quantifiable thing that you can go and do is help someone else and it can actually improve our own mental health so i think it's really important that mental health is a whole range of things about internally looking after yourself but the last aspect and for me one of the most important is being able to contribute to a wider community what mental illness looks like is something that's really different the most important thing that i try and emphasize when talking about mental illness is it's not a set of behaviors you can't particularly look at someone and go that person's mentally ill mm-hmm. as compared to that person's not. The mm-hmm. really important thing you need to educate people on is mental illness is a change in behaviours. The, the people that are best equipped to notice mental illness are the ones that are around us. They're the ones who are going to notice those small changes in our behaviour that indicate that we're not doing very well. Someone who's depressed can't get out of bed every day. When I was depressed, I spent my whole day doing things from beginning to end. Yeah, so, by all accounts, you were, you were kicking goals. You were kicking yeah, goals. Exactly. <laughs> and I think we've all heard the, the, the whole, this is what depression looks like, needs to be kicked out the window. Yeah. Um, or, or this is what anxiety looks like, or this is what, you know, whatever illness you want to determine looks like. What's really important is we notice those changes in behaviours. Our peers are the ones who are best going to notice that, our colleagues, our family, our close friends. If someone's, you know, they tend to rock up to work early they, they perform really well at work they deliver really high standards they're really well kept they dress well you know they, they look after themselves and if these habits start to slip you know they start becoming quite disheveled and, and they're not necessarily dressing as well as they normally do they start mm. coming to work late and delivering poor standards well those changes are what we need to notice or mm. someone who is quite withdrawn they might just be introverted it doesn't necessarily mean they have social anxiety they're just an introverted person whereas if someone 
used to be quite extroverted and they, they loved being loud or happy or energetic and then all of a sudden they've transitioned to something different. That's the change we need to notice. I think we spend too much time get being caught up on this is what a mental illness looks like. I, I really think we need to change that dynamic to say actually it's the adjustments in behaviour that help us uh, notice or pinpoint mental illness. Like yourself, you're, you're a great example. People don't walk around with their shoulders slumped over. It's not something you can identify just walking down the street. As you said, it's people who are close to you that are going to notice the difference. Mental health affects everybody in the community at different points of their life. Another thing was, does mental health have a branding problem? In what aspect do you mean that? Uh, the image, the public perception of mental health. I think it still does. I think there are aspects that need to be adjusted, particularly when I've spoken about mental health is automatically associated with mental illness. Those people who are suffering from mental illness are still stigmatised. You know, people still find it very hard to say I'm struggling or I have struggled or that I've found that I've sought help, professional help. You know, I've seen a psychiatrist, I've seen a psychologist, I've been on anti you know, depressants or whatever it is, I think people still really struggle with that step. And I understand why that is, but we need to make it acceptable for people to actually do that. I think we need to educate people. You know, everyone always says we need to learn how to reach out. You need to teach people how to reach out and ask for help. We actually need to teach people to reach in. We need to teach peers, colleagues to reach into those people and say, I've noticed that you're struggling. How can I help you? Mm. Um, we do still have a branding problem. As I said, organisations like Are You OK? have changed the landscape of mental health and mental illness. Mm. But I still think there's a lot of work to go there. It's not up to one individual or one organisation. It's about educating the whole community on, on small language barriers and small implications that actually carry a lot of weight. This is that differentiation between mental health and mental illness. And do you think that that's, that's what scares people about mental health is its association with mental illness? Absolutely. I think, I think yeah. we all need to be talking about mental health. Think about how many times a day, you know, there's advertising in front of you to be physically healthy, to be physically oh, sure. fit, to eat, use the right supplements, to watch the right TV shows, to be physically healthy. I just think there's, there's nowhere near that same dialogue about being mentally healthy. We need to change that. We need to make sure that people are going, okay, I want to be mentally healthy. I want to be mentally happy. I want to be mentally resilient so that they can then hopefully not go down that mental illness pathway. But unfortunately, you know, and I see it firsthand, you, you say, oh, I'm hosting a mental health, an event about mental health. It would be great for you to come along and learn some tips about how to support yourself or support people around you. And people automatically think, okay, we're going to be in a room talking about depression or talking about anxiety or OCD yep. or whatever it is. And it's really not the case. And I think it's really important that we change branding to be about being mentally healthy, well and resilient rather than just mentally ill. We are getting to a point where, where people are going, okay, I want to do, what can I do? How can I help the people around me? And, and the first point of call, I think, is, is mental health first aid. I, okay. also, I think mental health first aid is a for people to have um, we need to teach people how to have emotional conversations how to facilitate emotional conversations you know there's a whole range of skills that we go through on in, in banksia's courses facilitating a safe conversation 
just listening, you know, not jumping to conclusions, not jumping to judgments that are natural. It's providing people a safe, to, a safe space to talk about whatever they want to talk about and then mm. us just navigate through that. If we do that really well and really effectively, then hopefully people will prevent the need for mental health first aid because we're not letting people get to crisis. We're giving yeah. them the avenue to get to safety prior to crisis. A really crude idea that popped into my head when you were talking about mental health first aid and when people get to that point, it's like waiting till people get diabetes before you start addressing their, their nutrition or giving them those healthy habits and those healthy outlets and stuff and healthy behaviours to, to start incorporating into their daily life before it gets to that crisis point. Yeah. There's a quote by Desmond Tutu that talks about, we need to stop pulling people out of the river. Why don't we get upstream and help them from falling in? Stop letting people get to crisis by doing the right things preventatively rather than learning how to deal with those crises when they fall yeah. Mental health takes work. What's doing the work of mental health? I think for me, as I touched on before, it comes back to this foundational habit. I think we really need to invest in our mental health daily in order to stay healthy and happy. I think back to the, the time when I was a, a want-to-be footy player, let's put it that way. Um, if you had a shoulder injury, the physio would say, if you do 100 reps of this a day for a month, your shoulder will be fixed. Me being me, I'd go and do 300 reps a day. My shoulder mm-hmm. would be fixed. Hopefully never have to worry about it again. I'd tick that box, I'd recover what I needed to, and I'd be ready to go. Mm. One really major changing point for me was going, okay, mental health doesn't work that way. I can't do a certain amount of reps of a certain thing a day for three months or six months, and I'll be fine. I'll, I'll tick the box, I'll sort it, and I won't have to worry about it again. For me, it's a constant spectrum, and I think it's the same for everyone. Mental health is a constant spectrum that's continuously changing. In order for us to stay at the healthy and happy, and we need to invest in that. We need to focus on the right habits every day to make sure we're healthy, well, and resilient. Your habits, as, are going to be different to mine. We need to spend the time going, okay, well, what makes me feel better? Mm. What helps me deal with my day-to-day life? And what helps me combat challenges when they arise? and then investing in those behaviours. It's not a one-size-fits-all, so we do need to spend the time differentiating between my own behaviours and yours, and then working out, okay, well, how can we implement them in a more regular basis? Self-care can be a whole lot of things. It can be something as big as doing an hour's training session a day. It can be something as small as taking three deep breaths. I think it's really important we work out what our own self-care looks like making sure it's achievable and then making sure we can actually implement that. A lot of people say, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, New Year's resolution, I'm going to read more books this year. Self-care might be reading a book, but finishing a whole novel is not something that's very easy to achieve. We need to change that to look like, well, why don't I read a page of a book next time I'm feeling stressed? You know, a lot of people say, I'm going to go for more runs. If we're using the, the outlet of running 10Ks, to mm. feel better as myself, mate, I'm not going to tick that very easily. If I change that to say I'm going to run for 10 minutes or move for 10 minutes, well, that's really achievable. It's all so unique to the individual, right? That whole running thing. I set out to do that one healthy thing, which was the running every day. I knew that I'd fail if I tried to make it some massive target every day, like your 10K idea, right? I knew I wouldn't even hit that because that would just get too much. 
So I've just made it just get out the door and run for half an hour because that's something I know I can do. That's like that minimal mm-hmm. thing. And for everybody else, that will be, what's that smallest thing that you can do every day that makes you feel good, blow off steam, clear the mind. And I think the meditation one is that the meditation thing comes up a lot as well. Like everybody's like, well, I should probably meditate. Meditation for me is when I ride my motorbike because I can't focus on anything else. I can't have my phone in hand. I can't. <laughs> the consequences are pretty dire <laughs> that, <laughs> on a motorbike. I'm present, I'm present and I'm there and I'm, I can't have a focus on anything else because if I'm focusing on something else, I'm not focusing on keeping safe. You should try so, chainsaw juggling. Oh, I'm okay. <laughs> I think I'll pass on that one. But, you know, a lot of people talk about, say, surfing, for example. You can't focus on anything else while you're there. So yeah, um, that's, that's true. Then, that's the form of meditation and mindfulness. So I think it's each their own. I think about self-care as including other people in that loop. If I can recognise that my behaviours when I'm feeling stressed, are, you know, I'm, I'm, I might be short-tempered or quite flat or down, I can then recognise that, when I feel down, it's important that I say get 10 minutes of movement or call a friend or get some fresh air or do whatever it is, work out what my self-care is. If I can then identify other people that can help me with that self-care loop, then that's really valuable. Sometimes the last thing we feel like doing is getting outside and moving. My partner knows that if I get down, if I start withdrawing or get short-tempered, that might mean that I'm struggling with something and she knows that I feel better if I get 10 minutes outside. So she might grab me and pull me off the couch and let's go get 10 minutes outside. She can recognise the trigger, she can recognise the behaviour and she can recognise the solution because I've included her in that conversation and that dialogue. That's so cool. I think it's really important not only we work out what our is, but work out who we involved in that that can help us feel better because sometimes, as I'm sure we all know, the last thing we feel like doing is what's actually going to make us feel better. Yeah, and we're not in it alone either, you know, including those people, like you say, that are close to you Absolutely. to help support you through this journey to feel like we have to do it all by ourselves. We have to bear that burden all of us, all on our own as well. You know, it's not always easy to snap yourself out of that rut. I think people use that example all the time, say, oh, just snap out of it. It's not realistic. Yeah. If someone that you know... If you're feeling flat, you're feeling down and someone that you're very close to says, come on, let's go do this. And you know they're doing that because they want to make you feel better. That can yeah. really help. That can make yeah. you feel cared for. It can make you feel supported. That's, that's really neat. That, that's good. I've got a note here that says facing our demons on the theme of doing the work. How important is it to actually recognise and face those demons and demons is such the wrong word it's like it's such an over dramatic but how important is it to recognize those challenges and actually actively work on those as a practice yeah. hurt people hurt people and, and i'll say that again to let it sink in hurt people hurt people if we've been traumatized or hurt or challenged and we don't deal with those as you say, demons, we don't deal with those challenges head on. We don't process them and, and work out how they've affected us. We carry on that cycle. Either the same way or in other ways, we continue those patterns of behaviors to the next generation or the people around us. No one's perfect. If we can try and be aware of the things that challenge us or trigger us and we know why that is, then that cycle. We spend time unpacking those challenges and unpacking those 
behaviours so that we don't continue that, that vicious cycle and hurt the people around us. And again, we're not perfect. The more time we can spend processing that, then the hopefully the more time we can, we can invest in, in keeping ourselves happy and healthy and the people around us. And the other thing that has become really apparent to me in this situation that we find ourselves in the moment, when I was going through my severe mental illness stages, I was forced to stop and reflect. I was forced to clear my calendar to work out, okay, I need to face these things head on because mm. the cycle I was in wasn't working. And as I said, I, I probably wouldn't still be here if I didn't face those things head on. What that meant was processing the emotions and processing the behaviours. What I'm really noticing now during this whole period of, of social distancing, physical isolation, all those sorts of things that we're all doing at the moment, and it's been going on, I'd say, what, a month? Yeah. People are being forced to stop. They're spending more time on their own. They're spending more time in their immediate sort of families or, or environments. They're not able to fill their schedule from beginning to end. They're not able to go from training in the morning to work all day to then a social event at night and then crash and do it all again. They're being forced to stop. They're being forced to spend time with their own emotions and their own sort of challenges. And I'm seeing it rear its head in a lot of people. I personally are feeling really confident about this environment and this and this um, scenario because I've already had to do it. I already mm. am quite aware of the challenges that I face and the behaviours that that makes that causes me to to do. Where the people who potentially haven't quite dealt with those challenges are now having to face them, whether they like mm. it or not. And it's new territory for them. That's really uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I think. It's really important to, to emphasize that not everyone is in a place right now. I think, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff online about, you know, this is the time to plan and this is the time to be proactive and this is the time to, you know, change our lives. And not everyone's in that place right now. Some people yeah. are still just working out what the hell is happening and how they survive during this, and that's okay. And whether um, that, sorry to jump in, but it just kind of uh, back to your filling your schedule and it's almost like, okay, so work's not beating down your door at the moment, but hey, let's be as busy as possible and plan for the future and fill our schedules so when work does come online, we can hit the ground running sort of thing. It's like, hey, why don't we just take some time out, freaking reflect and enjoy, learn a bit about ourselves in this quiet time. We're creatures of habit. As, as humans, we try and do things as efficiently as possible so that we don't have to think about the habits and we can spend our bandwidth thinking about new things, new engaging things, our whole routine and our whole habit has been completely disrupted. Yeah. People have spent a lot of time and energy working out what the new routine is, and that's okay. So I don't think it, it's necessary to say this is the time that people need to be creating new companies and creating new ideas. Some people are just catching up and working mm. out what the is going on, and that's okay. okay. For a lot of people, now is time that their challenges that they're potentially not facing every other day when they are, you know, too busy or too emotionally busy are starting to rear their head. There's two ways to go about that. Some people are just going to cope with it. But for other people, it might be an opportunity for them to go, okay, well, why is this emotion rearing its head? What's the cause behind this thing that I probably have been avoiding for however long that now I don't have a choice. It's popped its head up because I'm spending more time with myself and more time to stop and reflect. Why is it coming? What are the causes behind that and how can I deal with it so that I don't continue that emotion into the rest of my life? That's a nice segue into this sort of self-awareness. 
and how's self-awareness played a part in your life with your mental health journey? And what was your level of self-awareness like before uh, your tipping point or your crisis point and after? I would say that I'm someone who's always been fairly self-aware, but the yeah. issue is before the crisis, I didn't give a shit. Right. I, I, knew, <laughs> I knew what was important to me. To me, the most important thing was making sure other people were pleased. It was making sure I would tell other people what they wanted to hear. And to me, that was the most important thing. So other people's behaviours, perceptions and emotions took priority over my own. So, so I think I knew what I felt and I knew how I felt. It wasn't a priority. After my, after my sort of major challenges, you know, going through years of, of major sort of depression and suicidality, I went, if I don't start putting myself first and my own emotions and my own behaviours first and expressing those to other people if I need to, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to survive. And so the whole self-awareness piece is something that I've always had a relative touch on. Now I've made, a, made that more of a priority and I've gotten better at saying I don't need to do all these things or I don't need to necessarily say yes to everything or there are going to be times where I need to stand up for myself and say this is important for me, my well-being and my mental health. You said you've always been very self-aware until your crisis. You weren't actually listening to it. You were like you weren't the priority. But now it's like you're still self-aware. You're definitely listening to it. I'm not good at a whole lot of things, but one of the things I, I, I do really enjoy and I'm really passionate about is emotions and emotional intelligence and things like that. And that's something that I, I genuinely get a buzz out of is, is my own emotions and other people's emotions. Prior to, to my major challenges, my, my emotions and my well-being took, took a back seat to, to everyone else's. If I was struggling with something, if I was challenged with something, I would, I would never tell people, you know, even my immediate family and my partners and things like that, I wouldn't tell them because I didn't want to burden them. I wanted to make sure I could help them with their challenges and look after them and always sort of play that helping role to someone else. And that was what I thought was the right thing to do. Whereas now I can look back on that and say, you know what, I actually probably should have expressed how I was feeling and I should have let people in to care for me the same way I wanted to care for them. I think I'm much better at actually listening to that self-care and go, yeah, I need to prioritise myself just as much as I prioritise other people. In terms of vulnerability, because that's a, that's a big theme, I know what those first conversations are like when it comes to opening up to people about things. And it, the analogy I drew was sort of walking across that frozen lake where you don't know how thick the ice is. <laughs> And it's a pretty, it's a pretty tentative conversation, very, very nerve-wracking. But what were some of those first conversations like for you? Probably an absolute shit show, to be honest. Then they're not natural. They're not something we're used to. Whether it's nature or nurture, we don't do them. I was probably nervous, uncertain, and the people around me were certainly nervous and uncertain because they necessarily didn't know how to have those conversations. Once you start having them, once you start having conversations where you're vulnerable and other people are vulnerable, you start to, you don't go back to the, you know, the generic sort of chat becomes boring and it mm. becomes more and more apparent how unauthentic it is. A lot of people around me obviously know that I'm willing to be vulnerable and open about my emotions and therefore they're willing to do the same in return. I find a lot of 
my mates, you know, guys who are some of the biggest, strongest, toughest sport, sporting athletes you've seen, and they're coming to me and saying, look, I'm struggling. I think that's a really amazing thing to witness is once you start being vulnerable, everyone around you will start following suit. And then you start becoming really, really comfortable in those conversations, whether it's you being vulnerable or other people being vulnerable, and it provides a really nurturing environment. The ladies, uh, females, are generally thought of being a bit better at having these conversations than guys. You know, we, we've obviously all heard the the stoic masculine stereotype that, that men are put in, particularly Aussie men or, you know. One way I heard it put really well is that women are really good at asking the next question and women are really good at saying, well, how did that make you feel? And what was the impact that had asking that next question? Whereas as men, we probably talk about the event and then we talk about the next event and then we talk about the next event and then we talk about the footy for hours, you know, whereas I think women are really good at, at asking that next question. So we talk about an event and then someone might, and, and women might talk about the event and then one of them might say, and how did that make you feel? And how did that other person feel? And how did you react to that? And how would you react to that differently? Or how can we address this? Or what can we do to change that? Men don't traditionally go there and we're very comfortable not going there. So I think it's really important that we, we try and cultivate environments where we are asking those next questions and we're letting men actually explore and express their emotions rather than just talking about the event. I'm just thinking, is it because we don't care? <laughs> We don't care enough to ask that follow-up question or is it we think it might be prying or we, that part is foreign territory for me. Like I'm always the guy that will ask the follow-up question and I want to get in and know people and understand how they tick and why they feel a way. I really don't think it's that we don't care. Again, I probably what's considered a more emotional bloke than most mm. and not necessarily that I express my emotions. I'm very aware of my emotions and other people's emotions. What we see happening is it's not normal. It's a really uncomfortable thing. If, if one of your mates started saying at the pub, how do you feel? Or, yeah. you know, I've noticed you're, you're a bit emotional today. You go, oh, like, what's wrong with you? Why are you asking me that? Like, fuck off. I heard a farmer out in Dubbo get up on stage and say, better to be told to bugger off and mind your own, own business than to be told you lost another mate. You know, ask Fuck. 10 times, 20 times, 30 times, mate, are you okay? How are you? I've noticed you're a little bit emotional. Talk about the emotions. And if your mate tells you to piss off because he's like, why are you asking that? Stop it. That's a really good thing. Fuck, that's something to keep top of mind, isn't it? Yeah. A conversation could change your life. How does, uh, how does talking with somebody help? A whole range of ways. We have somewhere we know we can go where we can have a safe conversation. We have an audience that we know are going to receive that safely and we have ways that we can talk safely about how we feel. And as community members, we always sort of go off and as blokes particularly, we're pragmatic. We go, how can I fix? Mm. How can I solve? How can I help you? The traditional way of someone comes to us with a problem, we go, okay, what's the solution to that problem? That can be a really damaging behaviour. If someone comes to you with a problem and, and they explain it to you, it might take them two minutes, it might take them 30 seconds, it might take them five minutes. 
and then you go, well, why haven't you just done this? Firstly, what you're telling them is, is the problem that they've been dwelling over for potentially weeks, months, years is solvable in five minutes. You've just come up with a solution. Mm. You're also then prescribing them a solution that's potentially not fit for the environment. You don't know the ins and outs of it. You don't know the, the circumstances. And by prescribing you set and then come back to you and go, well, that's just ruined everything. You've made it worse. As peers, as community members, as untrained community members, the best thing we can do is just listen. We don't need to solve or fix. We don't need to have answers. We don't need to have solutions. What we always do in conversations is we rebut. You might tell me, I had this happen and it's really annoyed me. And then I'll rebut with, I had this happen and it's really annoyed me because I'm trying to relate to you. You tell me something else and I tell you something else. And we're not actually conversing. I'm not listening to you. I'm telling my story and you're telling your story. Whereas what we need to change is, for you to say, I had this happen, and then me to go, and then what happened? And how did that make you feel? What happened next? And what would you do differently? So actually unpack that story more rather than me just comparing my experience. We allow people the space to just talk about whatever they want, but then most importantly, we don't try and solve it. Particularly if someone's talking about a complex mental health challenge, it's not our place to solve it. The best thing mm-hmm. we can do to change that person's life in the example of a, con- a conversation can change a life is, is get that person to the help they need. Mm. That's the way to change their life because I'm not qualified to deal with these complex challenges. I'm qualified to keep that person safe, to make them feel heard and say, can we get you to that appointment? Can we book you an appointment with a GP? Can we book you with a psych or whoever it is? Because I'm not the expert, they are. Brilliant. Well, that just answers my next question. <laughs> which was how how can we how can we help each other for the majority of us that that haven't been through the banks here project or you know regular run-of-the-mill people how can we help each other how do we reach out to a mate in a safe way if we think something's up what do we do if we're worried about a mate how do we have that conversation i think you've got to choose the time and space isn't necessarily the best place to to have a conversation like this following up on things like that you might be at the pub or say in a whole group of mates and someone says something you go oh that wasn't quite right that might be a bit of a call for help or you can tell that's that's a bit of out of character for them to follow up on that you know after the event or whatever it is just give them a call and say hey I, i noticed you said this i just wanted to check on that justify your concern it might be someone in the workplace where, as you said, as, as the example we used before of someone who tends to be really, you know, well put together, delivers a really high quality of work, mm. all those sorts of things, and that changes, justify that concern and just say, hey, look, I've noticed that you're, you're starting to come to work a bit late and, and you're looking a little bit, uh, is there something going on? Is there something wrong or are you okay? The best case scenario, they tell, they tell you to piss off. Mm. And that's a really good thing. Okay, no worries. I just wanted to make sure because I, I, I care about you. That's a really good result. If you do ask that question and someone sort of says, justify the concern, ask the question, then just listen. We don't need to solve. We don't need to fit. We just need to listen non-judgmentally. I remember the first time I ever sat down with a mental health clinician and I sat on his couch and I said, now, look, I need to be really clear what I'm going through, I know there are so many people who have it so much worse off than I do. Mm. And he goes, shut up. He said, it's not about 
what you're going through. The circumstances are completely irrelevant. It's how you're perceiving it that we need to focus on. Mm. What's important if someone is saying to us, yeah, I'm actually not doing too well because of this, this and this. We don't need to focus on the circumstances. We don't need to focus on what they're telling us because we're not going to solve it. We're not going to fix it. We're not going to compare our own experience. All we need to do is focus on the I'm not doing too well part. You know, some people can go through the most horrific experiences and just keep going. And some people can have what we would consider, you know, perhaps trivial things happen and that can really affect them mentally. So what we need to stop doing is comparing or judging circumstances and just judge the perception of those circumstances. So if someone says they're not feeling well, that's what we need to focus on, not the circumstance itself. Listen to how they're feeling, not the circumstance. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. The words that you said before are ringing very freshly in my head and I don't want to compare stories. I've been in that boat as well, feeling like my problems weren't big enough uh, to justify professional help and life was going along okay. We're not comparing stories here. It's how that's affecting you personally. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a there isn't a hierarchy of suffering. Um, Yeah. There isn't, you know, you can't compare that suffering and it's irrelevant to do so as that friend peer whatever it is the best thing we can do is just listen non-judgmentally not about the circumstance but how they're perceiving it and then if it is going into a place that's beyond our scope if we are noticing things that are Mm. talking about more severe challenges okay mate well look i really care about you and i've noticed that you're struggling would you mind if we could, we could talk to someone professional about this? Can we include your partner in this conversation? Have you spoken to them already or can we speak to them? Have you spoken to a GP about this? Have you spoken to a professional about this? And the best thing you can do is, in, as that peer is facilitate that help-seeking behaviour. Hmm. Yeah, that was, that was my next question. How can we look after ourselves better? For me, it comes back to the self-care part. And that self-care takes time we need to spend time working out what makes us feel better what sort of conversations do we enjoy having what sort of people do we like spending time with what sort of things do we like doing that help our mental health and well-being and also what sort of things damage our mental health and well-being um you know it might be that you're in a workplace that just isn't healthy or the conversations Mm. that you continue to happen in your friend group yeah aren't healthy so it's really important for you, they might be healthy for other people, but they might not be serving a purpose for you. So it's really important we go, okay, well, what can I control around me that makes me feel better? And then how can I achieve more of that? Some time to stop and reflect. Reflection time in your own control. This whole COVID challenge is forcing people to stop and reflect. And that's not always a good thing because they may not be ready for that reflection yet. Mm. Time's right. Stop, reflect and work out what makes you feel better. Once you do that, then go, okay, well, how can we proactively implement that to invest in our own well-being every day? And, and coming back to your foundational habits, it's, okay, well, how can I start making that a habit? How can yeah. I make sure I'm eating well on a regular basis so that it becomes a norm, not just I'm, I need to focus on this? And making it, making it achievable, we definitely feel, well, I, I'll speak for myself, like I've felt like I have to be doing all these things to be successful, da da, da 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 The place I keep falling over is like your 300 books a year analogy. Yeah. We set these really unrealistic milestones for ourselves. And the key to success, I believe, is making them so small. It's about momentum. 
and being able to make those things so small that you can do them every day or incorporate them into your life on a regular basis and just do them because that momentum has power and over time that that really quickly builds up. I think one of the things that resonates with me there is um, I've been doing a lot recently on, on Simon Sinek and, and his, oh, yeah. his recent um, information is all about the infinite game. And I'm not sure if you've, you've come across much of that, but... Very familiar with uh, the why talk. So Simon's the next sort of new wave of, of thought is a lot about the infinite games. It's about the principles and the consistencies. If you build your principles for a daily or a weekly basis and you consistently do them, then you'll achieve the goals without even thinking about it. I think we spend too much time thinking about, okay, well, what's everyone else doing and how can I compete with that? Whereas what we need to focus on is setting up our own foundations around the right behaviours or the right things that we believe in or are passionate about. And this can be business, it can be home, it can be work, it can be anything in between. It's about doing the right things consistently. And, and for me, that's something that really helps my mental health is knowing that I'm having emotional conversations consistently, knowing that I'm investing in my, in my happiness and health daily and caring for the people around me. Well, that's my principle. Then I've just got to consistently do that and that's achievable every day. So I'm guessing principles and values and stuff like that would tie into that, yeah, like your values system. What do I want to be part of my life on a daily basis? In a, in a very formative age, my values and my principles were based around sport. That's a really good thing. But mm. the damage that does is it means that quite often I don't know what my own values and principles are. I adopt the values and principles that, that are forced upon you by the, by the community group I was in. Now, they happen to be really good values and principles, so I don't think that's a damaging thing, but the whole sense of identity is still a challenge. I think what's really important, people talk about, you know, they talk about their job. They identify, I'm a lawyer mm. or I'm a doctor. That doesn't matter. The values you need to focus on are people need to t strip that title away, whether it's I'm an athlete, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer. It's I'm a good family member, I'm a good friend, I care for the people around me, you know, I'm trustworthy, I'm reliable, and I'm also good at sport, or I'm also a doctor, I'm also a lawyer. And, and it's about working out what those underlying values and principles are and then adding on the title or adding on all that other stuff afterward. I love that infinite game. If I just Google uh, Simon Sinek, infinite game, is that what we're looking for there? Yeah, yeah, that'll, yeah, yeah, that'll awesome. pop up. I'll check it out. Okay, last question. What's one lesson that your mental health journey has taught you? For me, it's empathy. As I sort of touched on earlier, I, I was a pretty caring person as is. I always wanted to see how I could help others. The challenges I've gone through has allowed me to put myself... The whole concept of, of struggling isn't easy, but understanding that struggle and going, you know, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. I know what it feels like to be there and I don't want you to have to be there any longer. I want to help you through that. Look, Banksy is the outlet that I get to do that through. Um, I, I really try and emphasise that the people who join our community, our organisation, every person that registers to a program, I try and spend 20 minutes, half an hour on the phone to them, just sitting with them and talking to them and understanding that person and the emotion and being present with them and, and empathizing with their circumstances and look i'm not going to have the answers i'm not going to try and provide the answers but mm. if i can make you feel heard listen that someone cares for you and then i can bring you along on this this 
journey that, that Banksy is all about, well, that's, a, that's an amazing thing. And I, I truly think that if I hadn't have gone through my challenges, I wouldn't be able to, to authentically empathise with, with people around me now. So as much as it was a, a terrible circumstance and a terrible time for my own well-being, I do truly believe that it's put me in a better position to help others now. I think about my mental health journey and I'd have to, I, I can totally relate to you. What would my life be without the struggles and stuff I've been through? And I just feel like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't want it any different. I much prefer the person that I am as a result of the things that I've been through than what I could imagine that if I didn't have the tools that I was lacking because of it. You know, we both, I guess, how we've even come to this podcast is we've both connected because we're now passionate about helping others through mental health problems um, mm. and, and the amount of amazing people I've met and you know the amount of amazing connections I've made because I truly believe the thing I'm my purpose for being here now is is to help others and and to help others through those challenges if I can empower one other person to do the same and I've seen it happen in, in Banksy's programs and I'm not saying that's because of me but I've seen that change that someone else has made because they've been able to work through their own challenges. And now I've, I'm witnessing them helping other people. And now that's happening more and more times around me. Well, it's just, it's an amazing thing to be a part of that if I can empower someone else to collectively make a bigger impact in their community, well, that's, that's what, what helps make this, uh, all the blood, sweat and tears that have gone into this, this amazing organisation um, worthwhile. Mm. If people want to know more about Banksia or get involved in the growth rooms, how can people get in touch with your Banksia? Look, I'd say the first point of call is our website. Um, so yep. www.thebanksiaproject.org.au. We run our monthly growth rooms, which are safe, ongoing programs for a group of about eight or ten, where they just support each other. They connect, they support each other through life's ups and downs, and they learn some practical skills on how to deal with challenges first and foremost for people to get involved in those now there's two main avenues to get involved in that so you can become a facilitator if you're in a good position with your mental health you're feeling quite proactive and you want to help others well you can go through a day's training with the banksia project register to be a facilitator and then run one of these growth rooms for your own community group alternatively you can become a participant and just be present and enjoy the journey of one of these rooms learn a little bit more about yourself connect with other people, have some purpose by actually supporting other people through their challenges as well. You know, down the track, you can explore the option of, do I want to actually facilitate my own room? Now, all of this is free. So I would really suggest that if anyone is, is curious, get involved. And, and as I'm sure you can, as, as I'm the sales rep, I have to talk about it, but I'm sure yeah. you can say from your end, it's a pretty beneficial experience. Would you agree? Yeah, I'll voucher. It's, I'm so grateful that I stumbled across Banksia last year via Instagram and since being involved in the program I'm really loving it and people that I'm meeting and um, the support that I'm getting on a regular basis it's um it's a beautiful thing um I'll slip you that 10 bucks that I promised you after for that (laughs) (laughs) oh that's awesome (laughs) as I said to uh earlier in the podcast it's not just about being a part of those programs. If, if people are looking for a community that they can be connected with and supported with, then that's, that's what we're after. So any support we can get on, on social media channels, um, the Banksia project on Facebook or Instagram, but also just advocating for what we're doing in your community. You know, it might not be you that needs it, but there might be someone who 
who you're thinking of right now that, that may need that extra support, send them our way. Um, we're always open to it to make our community bigger and, and have an impact on more people. Jack, thank you. Thank you so much for coming along and being guest number five on the podcast. Mate, thank you very much. It's been a privilege to, uh, to just sit down and chat for a couple of hours and uh, I've really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for your time, man. Uh, taking out of your busy Sunday and don't work too hard this afternoon, okay? I'll be sure not to, mate. I'll, I'll keep that self-care in mind. Unreal. See you later, mate. Bye.